Scripture reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 28. Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a lad with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought an ill report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they only hated him the more. He said to them, Hear this dream which I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheath arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheath. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him yet more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word again. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, I pray you, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him afar off, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild beast has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into the pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand upon him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. The word of the Lord. I got a text from my brother this week. Uh, He's building a coalition to keep tech money, Google money, out of the Mission District of San Francisco, which is just, you know, driving out anybody who's not rich. But he said, I'm torn between whether to keep taking life seriously or just blow it off as an absurd joke. It's hard to fight the powers, the money. But I even sometimes get an overwhelming sense of futility just cleaning out the litter box. Every day, so many turds. On and on, no break. You deal with crap literally and metaphorically every day, and then eventually you die. I mean, it does seem kind of like a joke. No, I mean, that's way too simplistic. Obviously, there are birds and paintings and dazzling moments and your children and John Coltrane, and there are colors and there are ancient forests, at least for now. But the world is founded on nothing. God created everything out of nothing and the nothingness shows through sometimes. And you're cleaning the litter box, putting gas in the car, buying trash bags at Target when every attempt at justice or equality shows the powers to be so entrenched as to be unmovable. I'm not sure if joke is the right way of putting it, but I'm not completely opposed to it. Most great thinkers throughout history have perceived that it is a characteristic of a human being to find life uncomfortable, filled with angst and unease. These days, most people don't think so, though. Not in America, anyway, the land of the brave. If you feel angst or unease, you get a diagnosis. Paxil, Xanax. We hardly accept that this is the human condition. It wouldn't work out well for business, money. When Jacob, the quiet twin from last week who lived in tents after a long life full of struggle, plans at last to settle in peace, it's like, ease? Are you kidding? Like in the biblical narrative, the mere notion of such a thing looses the furies of the Joseph story with its anguish and injustice and grief. 
Or is there really just some jokester behind it? Like you have to get the people to Egypt somehow so that they can be put in in slavery and then they can be liberated by God and Moses. So there's this really long, convoluted, sort of unlikely story to explain how they got to Egypt. A story involving trickery, sexual intrigue, money, and power. Though I didn't really hear it that way as a child. I loved this story called The Boy Who Saved His Family. Anyone familiar with this? This is my copy. And I think it was these lines. On his way to Egypt, Joseph cried, Will I ever see my father again? Why did my brothers do this to me? But then Joseph thought, God can make bad things turn out good. And Joseph wasn't so afraid anymore. I mean, how wonderful. Terrible things happened to Joseph. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers who hated him, sold into slavery. The children's book skips this part, but I think it was stressed when we were adolescents and heard the story again. His master's wife tries to seduce him repeatedly, but he resists. His purity makes her angry, and she accuses him of seducing her, so he's thrown into prison unjustly. But God was looking out for Joseph. So, eventually, he becomes very rich and powerful in the Pharaoh's house because he helps him to to interpret an important dream. Joseph knows that God can make bad things turn out good, so Joseph wasn't so afraid. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. I memorized that in first grade. It is a comforting thought for an anxious child, or for an adult for that matter. But a child knows little of all things. An adult considering it should know It may be true that God does this, makes good out of bad things, but it is so often indecipherable. Most abused slaves stripped and whipped and thrown into the pits died on their owner's plantations, not rich and powerful in the Pharaoh's palace. We aren't children anymore. There is not much that is simple. Joseph is not the sweet little boy you find in the children's versions. He's 17, for one thing. And the first thing that we learn about him is that when he's watching the flocks with his brother, he brings back bad reports of them to his father. I mean, what kind of 17-year-old does that? Maybe fourth graders. Rashi says any evil he saw in them, he would report It's like he watched them. And maybe he didn't make stuff up, but when he looked at them, he saw what was bad, and he told his father. I think this says more about him than it says about his brothers. Twit. Snitch. But his father doesn't really help the situation by giving him a beautiful coat to wear to differentiate himself from all the others. I mean, what was Jacob thinking, you know? None of the people in the Bible are very good parents. That is for sure. 
blatant favoritism all the time. Abraham sends one of his sons to die in the desert, almost kills the other with his bare hands. The founding narratives of our faith are not full of healthy, successful people behaving well. You can find those sorts of stories all over self-help bestsellers, but the Bible is far more complex. Joseph's story could be construed as a success story, if you're into his sort of dream. He's like, hey, brothers, I had this dream where we were working in the field, binding sheaves, and my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around and bound down to my sheaf. His sheaf? And then he has another dream. He says, hey, brothers, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to me. Who dreams that sort of thing? The sun bows down to me. Pol Pot, Mussolini, comic book villains almost across the board. Dreams in the ancient Near East weren't considered to be something separate from the person dreaming. We're partly responsible for our dreams. They aren't just given to us, we create them. Martin Luther King said he had a dream. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed that all men are created equal. Joseph's dream seems self-important, self-serving, narcissistic, just dumb in comparison to Martin Luther King's dream. The text says his brothers hated him, but I wonder if he hated them too. I mean, what wants people to grovel before them? Not love. Joseph dreams that he will become a great, big, important person, and he does. But the content of his greatness is never really that clear. Well, the text does say that he was well-built and good-looking. That might have been something else that I liked about this story as a girl. Um, yeah, he's very well-built and good-looking. I don't think I noticed that he was holding a whip or that his brothers were groveling before him. As a more grown-up woman, Joseph's ego is annoying to me, and I have empathy for his brothers. I kind of want to punch him. The word for excess is another form of the root of Joseph's name. The brothers are irritated by his excess, his overblown ego. And they, so they tear off his special coat, and they throw him into a pit. The brothers behave a little bit like animals. They act jealous, and they act angry. They say to each other that we want to kill him. But they don't end up doing it. Their behavior and their emotions seem terrible, sort of out of control. But in the end, Joseph isn't really hurt all that much. There's this flurry of strong emotions, but Joseph slides through it all somehow, basically unharmed. And this happens for him again and again and again. There's some difficulty. There's some protest. But every time he comes out of these situations, suave and unflustered, and always richer than before. It's a real contrast to Jacob, his father, and all the other patriarchs who suffer. 
Jacob's life was a struggle. And now he'd like to settle, but bang! The son he loves is torn to pieces by wild beasts, he thinks. And he's in total agony. Meanwhile, the son he's mourning for isn't torn up or dead, but actually riding around in the pharaoh's chariots, drinking good wine and great food, and somehow unaware that his desperate father might like to know that he's actually alive and flourishing? Jacob suffers. Joseph accrues money and power and status in the empire. Joseph is never considered a father of the faith. The tradition doesn't speak of the God of Joseph like it speaks of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph doesn't seem to have much of a relationship with God. He's a successful man in the world. And some of the worst Hebrew kings will come from him. Terrible, evil, idolater kings. It's his success in Egypt that brings the Hebrew people from their own land into a foreign land where their babies will be thrown and drowned in the Nile and where they will become slaves. Things may go well for Joseph, but it's really his story that leads everyone else into eventual misery. There's a long narrative that discusses how the pharaoh gives Joseph control over the food supply and how Joseph extracts money and land and freedom from the hungry and desperate people. Joseph's story definitely has a dark side and a graceful side. There's this really beautiful moment where the brothers first come to Egypt during the famine to get food for the family to survive. It's a time of no excess. But their excessive brother, who they don't recognize, feeds them, gives them food, enables them to live. And what's interesting, too, it's this place in the story where Jacob, or Joseph, starts crying. It's like you don't hear of his emotion before this. It's like he's been really removed and cool. But when he recognizes his brother, like sees them, maybe almost for the first time, he weeps. He weeps before, during, and after the encounter. It's like something opens up in him, some unplanned response. The effect in the text is kind of like a slow motion lingering on the experience of weeping. It's almost like this irrational outpouring of real sorrow, weeping, is what enables him to give, to be gracious. Unlike his 17-year-old self who simply judged his brother, he says, I'm your brother who sold you into Egypt, but don't be angry with yourselves. He extends grace to them. He asks about his father. Like, finally, or at least in this moment, he is capable of human connection. The ego breaks in the weeping and gives way to the possibility of love. Nothing is not complicated, as far as I can tell. There are new turds in the litter box every day. 
There's jealousy and flashes of hatred and overblown egos and aggravation and way, way, way worse. Barbaric violence, unthinkable injustice, and there is love, I hope, I think. Someone decided that Joseph's story would make a good Broadway musical. You get Donny Osmond, you get some catchy music, a Technicolor dream color coat. The Pharaoh performs an Elvis routine. It's been one of the most dependably profitable titles in musical theater. The brothers do country western. It's light and playful. There are faux French accents. Isn't that weird? The Joseph story may be a little funny. A little bit of a joke. I really don't know. I know that it's not simple and neat. The biblical narrative, if it does anything, undermines our ability to find clear heroes or villains. Undermines our ability to draw a straight line, to say anything is black and white. Maybe because there's something salvific about that very thing not being able to find clear villains and heroes. Maybe because however appealing simple may be, it's just not true. And it's the truth that will set us free. And that involves loss and grief and pain. We might prefer to be more like robots, and we probably will be if Google has its way. The brothers behave like animals. And in the end of the story, in the end of Jacob, their father's life, when Jacob blesses the whole lot of them, all the brothers, in this beautiful and weird and wild poem, he says that they're animals. Judah is a lion. Issachar is a strong ass. Naphtali is a hind let loose that bears comely fawns. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. It's both actually a little bit funny and evocative. These Human animals become the 12 tribes of Israel upon whom the history of faith rests. What a weird and wild and beautiful human family, the family of faith. Levi led a massacre at Shechem. He wanted to kill his brother. His tribe becomes the tribe of the priests of Israel, the holy men. Who tells a story like this? The word for animal in Hebrew is haya. Its root meaning is life, just like the Latin root of the English word animal. Anima means life force. Life may be heartbreakingly difficult, full of unruly passion, but it's kind of vital if you want to be alive as a human being. The hope of faith, if it's going to live, has to survive a lot of turbulence. Jacob's children will live and die, and they'll know life's absurdity and pain. They'll know exile and its apparently fruitless yearnings. They'll know hypocrisy and violence. They'll know nonsense. They'll know bliss. And they'll know freedom, and they'll know redemption. 
Whatever resolutions or meaning or orderings they manage, they will have to create in the immediacy, in the vulnerability, in the confusion of their own lives. The Midrash reflecting on Jacob's blessing is convoluted and there's lots of arguments in it. Rashi asks, what is the meaning of these words? And this is what their father said to them, blessing them. Rabbi Eliezer says, it means he made them nurse from one another. I have no idea how Rabbi Eliezer came up with that, but I like it. Jacob makes the brothers, the tribes of Israel, nurse from each other. What a vulnerable image. Relationship troubled as it's bound to be is the stuff of life itself. There is a lot of potential for destruction and disaster, but still we have to draw from one another's being, nurture one another. And this image that the Midrash uses for this drawing on one another's being is surprisingly primal and physical and not entirely rational. More like food than like math. 